Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Ashley Fiddler on the show. She's the chief product officer at Eigen Technologies. She has a long history in product and machine learning, and she has a PhD in linguistics. And I am so happy that I got to virtually sit down with her to discuss everyone's favorite buzzword, artificial intelligence. We get into common applications, how and when to think about it as a product manager, whether or not you need an advanced degree to be a PM in AI, and what's coming next in the space. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm really excited about today because I finally get to talk to someone about something that I've been working on for a couple of years, and that's the super buzzy, everyone's favorite topic of artificial intelligence. And Ashley, you have a PhD in linguistics and you've been working in AI for many years. So I'm really excited to get your expert opinion. And where I'd love to start is just by doing some myth busting. I think especially as someone who doesn't have an education in the space, it feels like this cool thing that we're supposed to be using to make all of our products better and smarter. But in your opinion, given where we are today in the application of AI to actual problems, what kinds of things do you think it's actually useful for? Yeah, so I would say there's two categories of things that people usually use it for. There's what you might think of as traditional SaaS applications, which would be your chatbots and image recognition and things like that, where you're running it in the cloud, you're using whatever algorithms you want, and really the person that is on the other end of that doesn't really care about how you get the result. They just want the result. Those are more black box applications. In the enterprise space, you know, we tend to work on applications that have a lot more sensitivity with data and traceability needs. And in those kinds of cases, the types of applications you'll typically find are anomaly detection, finding information in complex documents, predicting performance based on past indicators. So, well, this would be a weather kind of thing. But in business, you could say if the stock market did X in the past, what might happen now in the future if the same thing happens again in the stock market? grouping things together, that kind of stuff. Those are the types of patterns. Fundamentally, machine learning is a pattern finding technology. So where you'll find it is where you need to find patterns and make predictions based on those patterns. Right. And as a product leader, what kinds of signals do you look for or would you tell people to look for as something that might make something a good fit for AI? Something I've seen is this tendency to say like, we can use AI for everything. So we should just be like slapping it all over the place. And that's probably not super efficient. Yeah, AI definitely makes products more complicated. So if you don't need to use it, you definitely shouldn't. The times where you really need to use it is where there is some kind of statistical pattern, something that you can't do with a rule. If you can say, okay, every single time, for example, if you wanted to process a W-2 form, you know exactly where the forms are. You know exactly what those boxes are. It's predefined. You don't need machine learning for that. You can very easily make a rule and just say, in this particular case, this is what you'll find in this box. This is what you'll find in the other box. And you don't need any machine learning. Where you would need machine learning, for example, is if you want to process a really complicated document where it's negotiated, it's different every time, the language is more complex, you'll never be able to consistently pull out. You don't know where the information is, right? So the machine actually needs to understand, okay, what is the structure of this document and where might I find this piece of information? So it's that more complicated pattern finding type of application where people need it. But I always advise people, you know, if you can try it with a rule and you think that rule is going to work 90 plus percent of the time, you know, you may not need any machine learning at all. And your application will certainly be simpler for that. Right. And you mentioned that it's more complicated and kind of harder to build with AI. I'm curious, can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. So basically the reason it becomes more complicated is because of the statistical dimension of machine learning, right? So traditional software 
you can predict what it's going to do. You program it, you know, obviously when you're trying to debug things, maybe it doesn't always feel that way, but if you give it good instructions, you're going to get a predictable result out, right? With machine learning, it doesn't necessarily always happen that way. For example, we just made a couple of changes to our application and our model training changed fairly fundamentally. And it took us quite a while to figure out why. And it wasn't really actually anything we did with the software. It was a combination of factors of just the inputs that we gave the machine and caused it to learn something slightly different. And you can even have like simple updates that you really didn't change anything. And because of the statistical natures of the system, you'll get a slightly different result. And people aren't used to that kind of non-deterministic way of thinking. So it just makes it a little bit more complicated. You also have to test it really differently. For example, I worked on the Microsoft Cortana system and we had to spend a lot of time actually testing the quality of the outcomes. Like it's not the case that when you say call Bob or like I want a movie with Brad Pitt that you always get a very reliable outcome. It, it's variable. So you have to actually do additional quality testing. You have to build in that kind of thing into a, any machine learning software. Yeah. And it's interesting as a PM when you're thinking about, okay, the typical process of you have your problem and you come up with your solution and then you maybe, you know, go through some rounds of prototyping and then maybe like a small early group of customers and you launch it, that process gets really strange when you're using AI because you can't see everything step by step. So it's like, there's this weird leap of, okay, we're doing this thing and then we need to like get the customer data and then we're going to launch for customers. And then we're kind of going to cross our fingers because you can't Like you mentioned, there's not a linear process that you can go through to make sure it's working exactly as you want it to. Right. And that's even worse in enterprise software, because if you're especially, for example, delivering on-prem, you have even less control over what the exact outcome is going to be when you deliver to the customers. Yeah. So that's an interesting part of it. The other really interesting part about machine learning, which is very different from other software, is you have to update the models, right? You get new data and you go and you update it and that will totally change the results. And the results are always based on past information, right? So like Amazon and all the other companies that do shopping kind of analytics had a lot of problems during COVID because all of a sudden people's behaviors changed really quickly and their predictive models that do pricing and things all got scrambled because it was just so different from what had happened in the past. So models are really just predicting the future from exactly what has happened in the past, And when the data changes, your models are going to change. When you upgrade them, you have to have some ability to take in new data and retrain those models and put those into production, test them against the previous models. So it's not trivial. Right. And I think that's also the rhythm of building is different because one of the things I learned when we first started building our product with AI is that it's not just we build it and we launch it and we're done. Like what you're saying, you have to continue to train the model. That means that there's like an operational piece to how you operationalize your product that's ongoing that I think is quite different from a regular SaaS PM model where you're like, oh, I'm shipping features and I move on from feature to feature. But this is like, you ship that feature and then you have to stay with it. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And that's something I think people really underestimate the cost of how much it costs to build and ship a machine learning product and how much higher it is than regular software, because it does require that ongoing handholding. And, you know, there's a lot of things that just have to be tweaked. The data can go wrong. Like if your data source, you know, I remember one time when I was at Microsoft, one of our data sources went wonky and we had to spend like three days all hands on deck figuring out what happened to this data feed. It had nothing to do with the models, but it's garbage in, garbage out. The data changes, your models change. Right. And then... I've had a situation where a customer would say, okay, well, why did this, we have a chatbot that's powered by AI, and they might say, why did the bot say this? And that's a simple question with a really complicated answer. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It often comes down to, well, the 
data, we had five more examples of this kind of thing, or this was slightly more prevalent. And so it understood it. Yeah, it's it's quite tricky. Yeah. Kind of on that thread, I'm curious in your experience, how you've dealt with getting customers, especially in the enterprise, to trust something that isn't as clearly observable as sort of a regular piece of software. I think a lot of times people talk about, and I think you mentioned this earlier, AI being a bit of a black box. Like, How have you handled that with customers in the past, especially if you have any examples of customers who aren't familiar with the technology and don't really understand it? This comes up a lot in the enterprise space, and this is where I would go back to that very initial point of there's two kinds of applications. There's some kinds of applications where if you're just doing image recognition, it's much less important that you know exactly how the algorithm works, whereas if you're doing like financial compliance, it becomes really, really important. So with those customers, a lot of the banks, for example, they have model governance systems where you actually have to pull apart the models and actually show exactly like where everything came from. The way I deal with customers who are having these kinds of concerns is, for example, we'll do an audit. We did this for one customer. We did a full audit of just every data that went into our underlying unsupervised models, all the features that were in there, like how did it work and help them just understand, okay, step-by-step, this is how the whole process works. And that's one reason that companies like ours and enterprise companies in general tend to use simpler models. Like we don't tend to use, when we have to ship on-prem and regulation environments, things like that, like we don't tend to use deep learning and other kind of more complicated modeling, because you just can't do that. You can't really show customers like, why did it do what it did exactly? And when you use simpler models, you you totally can do that, at least to some degree. And that does give people a lot of comfort to really be able to understand the process. At a minimum, if you do have a black box application, you can definitely go back and at least go through the training data, right? You can do a careful audit of like what trained this thing, because it'll give you exactly what you gave it. Yeah, that's a good point. And then I think when we were talking before, you mentioned this, but there's this concept or thing that we were talking about, about there's a threshold of accuracy that you have to hit when you're building a product like this, that if you're below it, it's just like, no one's going to want to use it. It's not going to work. And you have to get to a certain level of accuracy, which is, I think, especially interesting when you are prototyping or your early stages on a new product. And you have this weird thing where it's like, we're working directionally, but we know we have to get to the certain level of accuracy for a customer to trust this. Yeah, we did some research early in my career around conversational systems. And we found, you know, we had a bunch of people come in and talk to Xboxes at Microsoft, talk to other experimental systems. And we kind of found there was this like 75% threshold where like once it got above around a 75% accuracy, people just started talking to it like it was their sister or somebody, right? And they got, their demands got really, really high. And before that level of accuracy, if it was below that, people kind of thought the system sucked and they would talk to it like, you know, give me a movie or just something really simple. So I thought that that kind of binary switch was really interesting to observe. It was quite consistent. It resonates with what I've seen from our customers. And I think what's also interesting is one thing I'm learning, even for internal stakeholders, for customers or for whoever, this concept of not only a threshold of accuracy, but also a moment where they get it. So maybe they don't understand anything about the technology, but then they start to interact with it. And if they see something that's really cool, that's something that they've never seen a bot do or a system do, and then they're like, oh, now I get why this is better. Now I get why this is really exciting and cool. But like getting people to that moment is so critical in getting products to be successful. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, kind of, it's interesting, we're talking about not being able to use the more advanced or more complicated models in the enterprise. I'm curious for your take on why we're not living in the minority report vision of the future when there's 
whatever the new thing is that's like going around the internet on like, look at this amazing chatbot that's able to say, sound like just like a human. Like, why isn't that the stuff that we're actually operationalizing? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's two reasons, cost and workflow. So on the cost side, a lot of these more complicated models just are a lot more expensive to run. Like, you know, we have some models that we run that it costs tens of thousands of dollars a month to run these models. The other reason, so, you know, there's, again, it's like the right tool for the job. If you don't need that, you shouldn't use it because it just doesn't make operational sense. The other piece is really, I think, around workflow. And people tend to think about their human process, which tends to be very linear. And they say, okay, like we're going to do this process and it's going to have these steps and these people are going to be involved and here are all the stakeholders. And this is where we can slot the machine learning in, right? This is the place we have the pattern finding, right? And because people tend to think that way, like in order to really get, I mean, I don't think we really want to live in minority report, but in order to go in that direction, you need to actually start from first principles and think about the problem you're trying to solve as all good product managers should anyway. But the business has to also think about, okay, what are our workflows? How do we want to use this technology? And they have to take a step back and really think about it from scratch in order to define a workflow or define a process that actually is machine learning native. And very few companies have gotten to the point where they are doing that. And I think that's why, you know, that obviously makes technology adoption a lot harder. Also, of course, data. Our data is not standard. It's hard to find, even within companies, like your marketing data doesn't talk to your finance data, doesn't talk to your product data and making all that data talk to each other. Like a lot of these applications that you see that look so like they would be so cool require a lot more data standardization and cleanliness than the world has at the moment. Yeah, that's a good point. I also think that there's some aspect, you mentioned it like being machine learning native. There are so many companies that I think it would be cool if we were to use this technology, but the way that they are structured, even their organizational structure is such that it would be so hard for them to take advantage of the technology because they just don't even have the right people. That's right. Yeah. They don't have the right people. Things aren't set up in the right way. That is very challenging. Kind of on that point, I'm curious. We talk about this all the time. Our philosophy at Drift is having small three-person engineering teams that are super autonomous and are able to move really quickly. But when we're building with something like AI, the mix of people gets different. There's a lot of people who talk about having a platform and then having the people on the platform provide models to the sort of delivery, feature delivery teams. I'm curious, like, how have you organized your team or how have you seen people do that successfully? It's pretty normal to have a science team versus an engineering team split because the work that happens in the science team is just so different, right? It's a lot more R&D heavy. You can't really predict, like you can make a research plan, but you can't say like, we're going to do three sprints of work and it's going to be done on this date. On our team, we have a science dedicated PM. She's a PhD and really focuses working with the science team to help them translate the work that they're doing on the research side into what we're going to need for the product. I think that kind of person is a really critical linchpin to just translate like, okay, what is the business value of this thing? Why are we building it? Like, what's our research plan? What are the different contingencies? Like, do we think this is coming in? If we do phase one, then what do we know after that, right? And then we move to phase two, when might that be done? And start to be able to translate that for the business and for the customers. Because I've, in my experience, science teams just have a hard time, like really going all the way to just the pure business value framing. And I think a PM there dedicated to the science can help a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something that we focus on a ton, which is understanding the customer problem that we're trying to solve and the business value that we're trying to create. And I had a really wonderful moment with one of our scientists. And I'm happy to hear that you call them science teams because I've been calling them science teams and I didn't know if that was accurate or not. Um, I think it's common, 
Yeah, good. That's good. But anyway, we were, this tech lead and I were talking and he, I believe, is interested in – he has a master's. He wants to go back and get his PhD eventually. And I was asking him, like, are you happy that you have had this experience sort of working in a customer, like, we have to make money environment? And his response was, yeah, the quality of my code and the reality of what I'm trying to get done is so much higher now because being in a business context forces you to make it work. Yeah, that is totally true. Yeah, I think the the scientists who have really worked for a long time in a business context, they definitely start to realize, oh, they have to write production code. How do the engineers think? Like, let's make sure that what we're doing interfaces well with what they're doing. And that takes time for people. I started from an academic environment and then went into a lab. And it took me like a good year before I had the faintest clue what was going on <laughs> outside of our research lab, because it's just such a different context. Right. We had a moment early a couple of years ago where we were in one of those places where it was like, let's figure out if, if we can solve this problem. So let's figure out how to prototype something in a machine learning environment. And the science team was looking at us like, what What do you mean? Like, how are we going to do that? And we were like, I don't know, but you got to give us an answer by this date if we think we can do this thing. And they were like, okay. And it was cool because they figured out how to prototype something. And I don't think that they would have thought to do that if they hadn't had that quarterly OKR time pressure. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm curious on this the subject of, of working in and around machine learning, like what advice would you give to PMs who maybe don't have a technical background on how to work in a product like this? Yeah. I mean, the most important thing is really to understand the difference between the science and the engineering. Like when you're working directly with those teams, if you treat a PhD like machine learning person and work with them in the same way as an engineer with like deterministic sprints and like all these very firm processes, it just does not go well, right? (laughs) Because they're doing something different and they need structure and they want structure and they want to make business contributions. And they always really want their stuff to plug in and serve the customer. But the way they have to get there is different. So I think that's important. And then the other thing on the business side is really think about what problem you're trying to solve before you decide you want to use machine learning. Machine learning may or may not be the right solution to the problem. And there may be alternatives. Sometimes I see people just jumping really quickly to the conclusion that they have to have machine learning. And you're like, well, that's actually not probably the best solution for this problem. So if you really make sure, like all PMs should, that we really understand what the customer need is, I think it helps people make a lot better decisions about whether machine learning is appropriate. And do you think that you have to be a PhD to work with a team like that? Oh, no. It definitely helps because at least you have that research background. So you kind of understand how they think. You don't have to be, though. I mean, the main thing is to be able to listen and to be really comfortable with ambiguity and be willing to sit, you know, like to make friends with the science team. You need to sit there for a few hours, whiteboard with them, make sure they understand that you understand what they're talking about. At least the people I've worked with, there's always a concern about being misrepresented, that people will work with them. They won't really understand what is going on. And so they'll go off and sell something that isn't right or doesn't actually work or something like that. Right. And so taking that time to build, you have to build relationships with anyone, but I find with science teams, you know, you really want to sit and go through the whiteboarding, talk about what their problems are, talk about what they're trying to do, what gets them excited, right? Because like what solving new problems is what gets them up out of bed in the morning, right? And so you want to like engage with them on that and, and build that trust in that way before you start talking about deadlines and like what you might want to build. And I've found that I've seen a lot of PMs start doing that. They just jump in and think it's another scrum team and that never ends well. I mean, I'm absolutely biased because this is where my background is, but I also think that there is a large benefit to 
coming to a science team with an understanding of like, hey, I actually have basically no idea what's happening. I don't have an advanced degree in this space. Help me understand what you're doing. Like, send me a paper. Tell me what book I need to read. But would you mind spending 20, 30 minutes with me, an hour with me, just to take me through some of these concepts? Because I want to make sure I understand what you're talking about. And I found those conversations to be really fun and great. And I learned so much from them. And then that helps you build empathy on both sides, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Curiosity and thinking about it, like critical engagement with the topic, asking interesting and good questions and being curious. That's all it takes, really. You definitely don't need an advanced degree to do it. (laughs) Good. I'm glad I just didn't fire myself for my job. So I think this is kind of my last question. Like, Thinking about sort of this space overall, what are you most excited about in terms of using machine learning or AI or whatever you want to call it in the enterprise? What new developments are you most excited about? Yeah, I mean, I'm excited that I do think a lot of these fundamental challenges around data and organization and basic understanding of this technology are starting to shift. It's not going as fast as I think anyone wanted it to or thought it would, but I've definitely seen in the past few years, like people are thinking about it a lot smarter. They understand that it's statistical. They understand that it's going to take a certain amount of time to implement. And at least the customers I've worked with in recent years seem much more willing to work with you and get to a solution that really works as opposed to like expecting it to be some kind of magical technology, right? I've completely banished any use of magical language when we talk about this stuff, because at the end of the day, it's just math right? It's a special kind of math and we shouldn't get all wrapped around the axle about that, right? We should talk about the problems we want to solve and the tools we have available. And machine learning is one of those tools. And I think now that the hype curve has kind of started to come down on the other side of machine learning, we're starting to see that more critical productive engagement. The thing in the future that I'd really love to see is more data standardization, right? More people who just really think about data architecture from a corporate perspective and set things up in a way like the first step was just everybody stuck everything in a data lake. And then they realized it was still all a mess in the data lake. (laughs) So you need schemas and you need things to be interoperable, like from a conceptual perspective before you can really use machine learning well. And I'm starting to see people do that. And I like that. And I hope we'll see more of that in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are there any books that you would recommend or people to follow who you think are good at outlining the concepts we need to know, things we should think about, maybe for people who are unfamiliar with the space or for people who are in the space? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Honestly, I don't spend a ton of time like following the most advanced things on AI. What about intro intro to AI books? That's one thing I've been trying to find is a good, like, okay, if I read this, then I'm, I'm sort of up to speed. They get fairly technical relatively quickly. Like on natural language processing, I always recommend the Jurafsky book. It's kind of the big purple textbook that everybody <laughs> that everybody reads when they start on NLP. That was my first NLP book. I think that's a very common one. It's quite technical though, but you can still get a lot out of it. That's where I feel like when I look at the literature on machine learning, it goes very quickly from incredibly high level, like not even useful. It's so high level to like, it's math. You know, you're looking at equations. And I'm exactly in the middle of that. Exactly. I think the Drasky book, that's one that I like. And it's a bit of a slog to get through. It's a textbook, right? <laughs> so, but it does have, I think, a lot of concepts that are are helpful to read. That's a reasonable one. But yeah, I, I don't have a ton of great recommendations on it. I've, I have never found a book where I was like, oh my God, this just synthesizes so well, <laughs> like everything you need to, I'm sure there are some, but I'm just not familiar. I don't know. I've been on the lookout for it because you're exactly right. There's sort of like pop business books that talk about it as this like magical thing that makes no sense when you actually try to like make it a reality. And then there's the math books. I don't really need or have the 
emotional strength to go through the math at this point. So I was looking for that like middle road of, okay, here's what you need to know to like think about this in a business context, but you don't actually have to do the math. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've always just kind of read around the math. Like <laughs> I, I'm not that keen on like going and I, none of the stuff I've ever done really requires like a deep understanding of all the equations. So, I, you know, I tend to read it, look at it, try to understand what it's basically saying and then move on, which that's worked fine for me. Yes. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking me through this and giving me some more perspective on AI and the enterprise. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button, drop me a six-star only review, and let me know what you think. Or if you have a topic you'd want me to cover, a guest I should interview, send me a note at maggie at drift.com. Super appreciate everyone for listening. Thanks. Thanks.